Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning on Every Day is Earth Day this morning. We are having a very special guest. She is an author of a book called The Climate Action Handbook, and it outlines in a highly visual format everyday ways we can contribute to collective and individual climate solutions. Her name is Dr. Heidi Roop, and she is the director of the University of Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership and an assistant professor of climate science and extension specialist at the University of Minnesota. Good morning, Heidi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we've tried to get a hold of you for a while because your book, I believe, came out in March, and it is called The Climate Action Handbook, and it's a very visual. Let's talk about that book and how you got to that point. Yeah, great. Yep, it was published in March, and it's been um, a lot of fun to, to see it out in the world, finally. What is your research? I know you're highly involved in, in climate change, that sort of thing. Talk a little bit about your background so it helps us understand how you got to writing this particular book. Yeah, and actually that's a that's really good foregrounding to the book um, and to sort of how I arrived at needing to understand my own climate solutions journey and really not just talk about the problem and research the problem of climate change, um, but also really think about the solutions. And that. Um, is at the heart of the work that we do at the University of Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership. It's a mouthful, um, but to, to boil it down, we are a program that's embedded in the College of Food, Agriculture, and Natural Resource Sciences and Extension, and we pair research with practice and really think about how we can help Minnesota and Minnesota communities um, and producers and um, local units of government understand their climate risks so what we're facing today, but importantly, what we need to be planning for in the future. So we generate really um, critical climate information and then work hand in hand with and provide training and technical support for actually using that information and thinking about how we can start to be more proactive in our management of the risks of climate change, um, many of which we are already feeling and navigating um, in the state of Minnesota and, of course, beyond. I think today the headline is, uh, focused on heat, extreme heat events yes. on three continents at the moment. Um, and of course, we've been navigating wildfire smoke and drought and extreme precipitation earlier in the year. Um, so we know climate change is here and now, and we are really focused on helping better understand that future and helping communities prepare and respond. Heidi, you are called a climate scientist. Has that even been an <laughs> issue before? You know, climate change has seems to be more and more talked about, but the actual climate science division is rather new, isn't it, in universities? Uh, well, there have been, people have been studying climate, climate change, Earth's climate system um, for many decades, and so that is not new. Mm -hmm. um, the study of, of Earth's climate system at the University of Minnesota, there are many researchers that are looking at the different aspects of, of climate change and what it means for human health, for natural resources, for forests, for tourism, you name it. Um, there are people thinking about the implications of climate change. Um, I am a climate scientist, and so I study aspects of Earth's climate system, and a lot of my background um, is actually looking at um, understanding and quantifying um, today's climate and, and contextualizing that with past climate variability and change. 
Um, so really trying to address the question of, do we know that it is human? The answer to that question is definitively yes. Um, the, the warming of the planet we are currently experiencing is a consequence of our actions, um, primarily um, from the, the production and use of um, fossil fuels and the creation of greenhouse gases. Um, and so I have spent a lot of time working in uh, places like Antarctica and the Arctic, um, recovering archives of past climate change. So we, the planet itself preserves um, sort of stories and records of what the climate has been in the past. So ice cores, um, we take advantage of the fact that snow um, accumulates year after year on our Earth's ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, and over time, in fact, over millions of years, uh, we're actually trying to recover the oldest ice on the planet right now um, in, in a continuous sequence. We think we're going to be able to go back over 1.5 million years and reconstruct the composition of Earth's atmosphere. So what were greenhouse gases like in the atmosphere a million years ago, um, and how are they different today? So these records, particularly ice cores, have been foundational in our knowledge about just how different climate change, our Earth's climate is today from the deep past, um, and has been a critical tool in our toolbox for understanding um, just what's driving this change and just how different um, our atmosphere is now um, from that of the past, and of course us as as being in the driver's seat for causing that change. Heidi, is the ancient ice study was that a part of the Coldex Science and Technology Center, which you are the director for knowledge transfer for that? That's correct. Yep. I think so, we've yep, talked to you about that of... before, didn't we? We we chatted with you before about that before this book came out, and you were talking. You were actually exploring this ancient ice millions of years old is it or is how i can't recall it's a it's a fairly old ice yes and you may have actually spoken with my husband dr peter Neff. yes um, i did you are correct that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh yes our household is a bundle of fun and joy right we we both live and breathe climate change come over for dinner sometime it's a real joy Uh, it's all good news around our dinner table um, <laughs> I say that facetiously, but we do actually talk a lot about all the great climate work happening. But yes, we I am I'm also part of that Coldex project. Um, it's called the Center for Oldest Ice Exploration, um, and we are trying to identify where on the Antarctic continent um, we can recover a record of of ice that we think will be 1.5 to over 2 million years old. We're looking for a sequence of ice that goes from the present day all the way back that far. That's the unique challenge. We need to use all sorts of different technology and research teams to try to do that. We're also sampling parts of the ice sheet where we're we're collecting ice that's right near what we think would be the base of an ice sheet, particularly East Antarctica. And it sounds like our team has, has recovered some samples um, that are well over 2 million years old. Um, we're not going to be able to recover that in the direct sequence, but they're closer to around 4 million years old. That science is still wow. in development, but... Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, and from that, right, the, the magic of ice cores is that they p- directly preserve samples of the atmosphere. So we can directly measure the ancient atmosphere um, because of the way that air gets trapped between the little arms of snowflakes and gets preserved in ice. And so that's the type of research that we use um, to both to understand Earth's climate system. And then we also do other work like um, our team right now um, at the Climate Adaptation Partnership um, the state of Minnesota supported us to actually 
develop climate models that are going to produce information about future climate in Minnesota. So what we can expect for changing temperature patterns, precipitation, snowpack, soil temperature, soil moisture, lake temperature, out into the future. So we can use really sophisticated global and regional climate models to paint that picture of what it is we need to plan for um, in Minnesota's changing climate. And what does that actually look like? And so that's sort of going from the past, fast forwarding um, and trying to look into the future so that we can be better able to respond to um, the climate change that we know is coming. Now, that's fascinating how you go back several million years to predict what's happening in the future. Of course, the good old Farmer's Almanac every year predicts <laughs> what the next winter's <laughs> going to be, right? Yeah. So I don't... We all have different methodologies, but yeah. <laughs> right. So I don't know what their methodology is, but I'm just wondering how far out is it that you will have some idea in terms of this projecting for future climate models? Do you have any ideas now that of what you've learned so far where it takes you to say this is going to be happening in five years, 10 years, et cetera? Yeah, so we are really looking at change that we expect in the next sort of 20 years, 20 mm. to 40 years, and changes that we expect at the end of the century. So we, um, we they're sort of, they're not directly related to ice cores and the climate models, but ice cores help constrain um, some of our climate models, which is a little bit of, of climate nerdery for you. But um, <laughs> we are projecting climate out to the year 2100 for Minnesota. Wow. Um, and we're doing that using a range of different techniques. And we validate those projections against historical weather that we have actually observed and measured. And so we verify that the model is accurately reflecting. Um, we use basically what is called a historical reference period. So we'll use a period of time that we've already lived through, say 1980 to 2010. And we know what the climate was then. We know where um, events occurred across the landscape during that time period. And we actually have the model um, recreate or try to recreate that, that observed record. And we can actually then correct our data um, and understand where the model isn't necessarily capturing well the future climate. And we have sophisticated analytical ways to correct for that looking out into the future. So we sort of validate that the model is capturing well the dynamics of our climate system here in Minnesota. And then we march that out into the future for different emission scenarios. Um, and what that means simply is that because we don't know what we will do as a global society to reduce emissions, right, to prevent the problem of climate change from getting worse, we actually have to look at a range of possible and plausible futures depending on how much greenhouse gas emissions we continue to produce. And so organizations like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change create thousands of different pathways and combinations of um, different variables, like how much coal will still be in use in the U.S. versus China, um, what will different socioeconomic factors be, those all get factored into these what we call emission scenarios. And so we're producing data around, again, temperature, snowpack, um, soil moisture, out into the future for different types of scenarios um, based on what we think the future um, of emissions might look like, which is one of the main levers um, for determining how much warmer it gets and thus how many impact, what the impacts are that stem from that warmth. How, how are we doing? What does it look like for 2100? <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately for me, I can't answer you right now and okay. give you specifics. The supercomputer is humming away ah. um, as we speak, analyzing the data, but we will um, have information available for use um, by the end of this year, we're hoping cool. for early this fall. 
and we're actually presenting the information will all be available in a, an online interactive tool. Um, and we have a bunch of different resources that we're putting together to help people use it. But soon you will be able to go on and, and pick your favorite location in the state and, and start to think about and understand what the future climate will look like um, in, in your geography of choice in the state. And we will also have extension educators and others who can help you um, understand and think about how you can use that information um, in different decisions that you might be making. Well, I think we'll need to talk to you then when th- that comes out and, and see how things look, because I'm really curious. That would be great. Yeah, let's plan on that. But now I'd like to talk more about your book that you came out with, and it's the Climate Action Handbook. What prompted you to do this? Because generally you're a researcher, you're writing academic type things, and this is more of a book targeted for the general audience and what people can actually do. What made you decide yeah. to do this popular <laughs> print writing, I guess you call it, instead of academic? Yeah, well, okay, so there's two things there. So, yes, the book um, was published by Penguin Random House, so it is. It's meant for a broad general audience. Um, I'm calling it sort of the welcome mat <laughs> um, to climate action um, and inspiration, so really hoping um, the book is really intended to um inspire you to think differently, maybe pick up something or do something differently. Think about your role and the opportunity you have to show up as being part of um, climate solutions. Climate doesn't have to be the primary reason why we do a lot of things, but a lot of times there are benefits to decisions that we make in our everyday lives that can help us address the um, climate change. So the book was motivated out of two, two key things. The first is that Um, As we just discussed, I think a lot about climate change and I understand the problem of climate change really deeply. And I talk about climate a lot and what we understand and how we know the climate's changing and what we expect the future to look like and how much warmer the planet will be, all the doom and gloom, right? Right. And at the end of every presentation and every conversation, you know, hands go up or people look at me and say, well, what can I do to address climate change? How can I be part of the solution? And I never felt like I had a good answer or an answer that was inclusive of all the different types of people and audiences with whom I had the privilege of interacting and listening to and learning from. And so um, really felt like both I wanted to know more, what can I do? How can I as an individual show up to be part of the solution? How can I show up and be part of my community, whether that's a faith community or the neighborhood that I live in? and engage in solutions at that scale? And then also, how can I start to engage to, to move the systems, right? The systems-based change that we also know is necessary. And so I, I didn't really feel like I had a good set of answers that invited a lot of people in to be part of the solution. Uh, we say a lot of things like climate change is an all hands on deck situation, mm-hmm. but more often than not, we're talking about solutions and ways you can be part of the solution that not many hands can engage in, like buying an electric vehicle or putting solar panels on your roof. Those are important things. And if you have the resources and capacity and own a home and you can do that, please and thank you. But there are many people in this country, for example, that rent or don't have resources to buy a new car. And does that mean that we also can't be part of the climate solution? Um, and the answer to that was is no. And so I, I was challenging myself not only to think about what can I share with people, how can I change my conversations about climate from there being a problem to look at all the ways we can solve this issue. Um, So it was both about that education piece, but also really for my own self. 
so that I could think about and be challenged on a regular basis um, to actually show up and be part of the solution myself. Um, it was it became insufficient for me to talk about the problem and not really also be as engaged as possible um, in being part of the solution from what I do at home to working to champion change um, at the state and, and national scale. You mentioned the economic barriers. What are some of the other big barriers you've seen to people that to prevent them from taking climate action? Well, they're political barriers. <laughs> um, I think, but I think one of the real challenges is that the climate science community and other folks who are talking about the need for climate action think we haven't necessarily been in, as inclusive in our language and inviting more people to see themselves as part of the solution and acknowledging that there are many ways that um, or many motivations people might have for doing something. And I've come to realize um, that, and this in my own work, in my own space, right, not everything I do, I mean, if, right, if finances and resources were unlimited and I could do all the things I wanted to do or thought I might want to do, um, that would be one thing. But of course, we each have our own constraints. There are lots of different pressing priorities we have, um, family and health and careers and all of the things, right? And so I really wanted to find ways, and I think we need to continue to find ways to welcome people to seeing themselves as being part of the solution while acknowledging that climate action might not be the primary reason you do something. Um, an example I like to give, right, I, I grew up in Wisconsin, um, I'm a good Midwesterner. Uh, I like to clip coupons and save money. It, it was like, it's it's really, <laughs> I love it. It's a value. And also, like, I get a thrill, right? Like, we all tell each other how, you know, how inexpensive we got that thing. Or I had a, you know, $2 off coupon. So for me, as I was doing my learning about how to show up, and this is a small example, um, for example, we can save quite a bit of money um, by washing our clothes in cold water instead of hot water, right? The default setting on my washing machine is for like the extra hot. I got to figure out how to change that. Oh. Um, but switching it to cold, right? And when I started looking at the numbers, realized like, huh, that's something I'm going to do. Great that it saves energy. Great that it's good for the planet. But also like, I, I actually, one of my motivations for doing that is because it saves money and it makes good sense. It makes good financial sense for me. To, to do that, right? It's like clipping a coupon every time I turn on the washing machine. Did it work? Um, and that is a motivation for me. Yeah, it worked. I'm just wondering if your clothes are, you know, clean enough, because I think that's, we've all heard that as well, you know, this should be in warm water, for example, or hot water. So people think, well, it's not going to work, but. If yeah, it, it does work. Okay. I think I had to experiment with the soap, okay. um, figuring out the right eco-friendly soap that would actually like, you know, disintegrate. I don't use those little pod things with the plastic oh. around, like they don't melt in the cold water. But I've, I've found some um, little washing. They're actually um, a friend of mine at the Bell, from the Bell Museum turned me on to these. They're the like detergent strips, oh. and they actually melt just, they just disintegrate just fine um, in cold water. And so that's, again, very small example, um, but I think a way that we can start to invite more people into thinking about how do you build People not just doing one thing and calling it done. We call that single action bias, right? I turn off all my lights, so therefore I'm a climate hero. I pat myself on the back. <laughs> the book is really intended to inspire and challenge you to think about the multitude of ways and opportunities that we interact with every day. 
um, from the food we eat to what we do at work and how we have conversations about climate. Um, and so really building this holistic portfolio of climate work, I'm calling it a climate solutions journey, acknowledging that we can all, we're all on the, in, a, in a different place in a different space and have different strengths and capacities, um, but we can all be on this, our own journeys and, and making a big impact. And there's just a lot of opportunities. The, the one thing I really learned is that there are so many things we can all do. And it's okay if we all have a unique combination of things that we do, as long as we start acting and doing the work um, and doing it again and again and again. I like how you said that, you know, not everybody can afford an electric vehicle, for example, or to put solar panels on the roof. And th- those seem like really great things to do, but maybe it's not attainable for some. And I know you actually in your book list some unexpected climate actions, even things like get to know your favorite coffee was one example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we eat, I think one of mine was imbibed with climate in mind, right? Thinking about um local wine and and spirits and thinking about also how these industries will be impacted by future climate. So some of it, right, it's a blend of, of action and education and, um, and learning. I think the, the real challenge for me was like trying to think across like the many different things that many different people do every day and where we have, um, authority and there's a climate connection turns out there are a lot of them i thought i didn't think i could do 100 that was the editor's idea um <laughs> it turns out there were more than 100 oh. i had to leave some some out um <laughs> so um i think really it is there are a lot of things expected and unexpected and i think that is one of the things that we for people who are really engaged in this work um i learned a lot in the process of developing this book And I also think we tend to forget that there are things we can learn and things that other people just don't know. I've heard so many people have reached out and said, I had no idea this was a thing or I'm now doing that thing in my community or, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, having one of my favorite things I I talk a lot about in the book, both about how we prevent climate change from getting worse and, of course, how we also prepare for the climate changes we've set in motion. Um, And one of the things in the book is actually making sure you have um, an emergency kit, a stay bin, and then a go bag. Like, what would you do in the moment of a natural disaster or other um, crisis? And so many people, when I'm talking to folks, don't have anything in place. They don't have spare water. Nope. Um, they don't have an emergency <laughs> kit or a, they don't know their neighbors. Um, and that, for me, is a great climate action because we know, even from the academic literature, communities and neighborhoods that have strong social connections and who can help look out for one another in moments of disaster, both weather the disaster more effectively, but also are more are better equipped to recover from such disasters. And so as we think about more and more of these extreme weather events, more of these crises, being able, how many of us don't want to be able to help our neighbors? I don't think there are many of us who don't, don't principally want to help our neighbors in, in a moment of need. And so are, are you able to put, put together that emergency kit or work with your neighborhood to make sure there's a plan in place or an email list or a way to stay in touch when something, when a disaster happens? I noticed that's one. So, so things like that are climate action, too, in I, my book. I noticed you've, <laughs> you've talked about community in your book throughout, talking about community sharing as a way to address climate uh, climate change. And I would like you to expand a little bit more on that, this community sharing idea. 
Yeah, you know, I think at the heart of some of the challenges, especially in the United States related to climate and just resources, are consumption. Um, We tend to consume a lot, whether we're talking about clothes and fast fashion or, um, you know, around your home. We just are a resource-intensive and consumptive um, country and global society, right? And, of course, there's varying degrees of that. But um, at the heart of of that sort of sharing, right, we can be sharing physical resources. I think people have heard lots of stories of, you know, these, um, like, free little libraries are Mm -hmm. a great example. Um, Increasingly, there are little free little little libraries for tools um, for that electric lawnmower. You know, three neighbors go in to pitch in to get replace the gas mowers with one electric mower. And so we're buying fewer resources. We're embracing sharing um, and also things like actually trying to repair. Um, There's more and more opportunities um, and to actually get items repaired or communities or people who are experts in that kind of thing are offering up their time um, at community events and things like that. So thinking about how we can use less, consume less, but also sharing as being being a way that we can actually engage in that work and also build those connections and be in community um, that I think are so powerful for, for many reasons. As we're experiencing some of the hottest weather around, and especially folks in the South, and even here in Minnesota, it gets uncomfortably hot and muggy. Uh, we've set some of these changes in motion already. And so I've heard other Folks I've talked to on this show every day is Earth Day that one of the things we have to do is prepare to address these things by doing something, but also just adjust as things are going to change and how we can alter our our lifestyle in a meaningful way. And how do we do that? I know you mentioned something about that in the book as well. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, think, right, we at the Climate Adaptation Partnership are really invested in preparedness and thinking about how do we prepare for the changes that we know we've set in motion, um, right? The planet will continue to get warm. How hot? That remains up to Oof. us. Like, we still get to decide that outcome. Um, things like sea level rise, um, that's a little more difficult, right? We know that the change, um, the direction of change is only one direction. That's up. Um, sea level rise will continue to go up and impact coastal communities around the globe for at least the next thousand years. How fast sea level rise will go up and by how much, that is still a big scientific question. And we also, there is some um, latitude for our, our actions um, to have an impact on, on determining that fate. Um, but on the sort of local and individual scale, yes, we, we know that we've set change in motion and one of the big pieces about how we experience future climate and even current climate, as you point out, is how well prepared are we and are we thinking in a proactive way rather than a reactive way. And that's that's true for our healthcare system. That's true for emergency management. I was just today talking with several emergency managers um, and right there already scarce on resources and capacity and you layer on things like heat and that becomes really difficult because Heat can be hard in an, an extreme event because sometimes, like in an urban environment, we have urban heat island effect. So sometimes they don't even know that a community might be experiencing extreme heat um, because we don't have even the right data. Um, we aren't even monitoring the right the conditions in the right place. So there are people trying to not only develop systems and put in place plans like heat preparedness plans um, and for, to reduce people's exposure to extreme heat, but also understanding where where is it occurring 
and how can we better track and monitor so that we can intervene and assist communities and individuals in their households um, when it's needed. Because yes, extreme heat is is something we're we're going to increasingly be dealing with, and we can see, of course, on a national and global scale, um, that that is something we are already coping with. And there are, of course, deep inequities um, baked into who experiences extreme heat, who has access to protect themselves um, from these events. And so we have we have a lot of work to do. Um, but by being planful, we can address a lot of other issues and, and bring a lot of co-benefits um, to the work. Dr. Heidi Roop is who we are talking with. She is the director of the University of Minnesota's Climate Adaptation Partnership, and she is also the author of the relatively newly released book, The Climate Action Handbook, A Visual Guide to 100 Climate Solutions for Everyone. What's the visual guide part about? Tell, tell folks about what that means. Yeah, so the most fun and the most difficult aspects of writing this book were related to the visual aspect. I knew very clearly as someone who um, is really invested in thinking about how do we communicate this information clearly, that a large, thick book um, with all the facts and figures um, was not going to change any hearts, minds, or behaviors. And so I wanted to provide, again, it's called the handbook for a reason, um, the structure of the book, it's 100 actions, but each, the text around each thing in every, there's every action has a prompt, something you can do, um, but it's around 300 words, so a, a page, um, and then every page is paired with an infographic um, or a quote um, or something thought-provoking um, to think about in addition to the text. It's also very colorful. It's got a whole palette of colors. And so the book is structured really to be that handbook for you to, you don't have to read it in any order. Um, You can start the beginning, the middle, the end. You can look at one section like food and farming. You could start there. You can start, you know, we might wake up and think I'm really, oh, it's extreme heat. I'm going to read the chapter on the heat of the extreme heat chapter and how to prepare for um, my heat heat health, right? Um, So the visual component is really meant to be, um, a way for people to engage in the information um, in a in a different way than a lot of the other climate books that are out on the landscape that are great, um, but ones in which like even I struggle to have a, a multiple chapter books about climate change on my bedside table. Um, the goal here was to again provide something that many people could engage with um, from those of us who are deeply engaged in climate work and know a lot about climate change. To those of us who are just curious and want to have an accessible way to to learn and and act. Well, so far, the book has been very highly rated. So congratulations on that. Where is a website people can go to find out more information about the work you do or climate change in general that you think would be a good resource? Yeah, great question. So for the book, if folks are interested in seeing a copy, you know, check out your library or your favorite local bookstore Um, If you need to get it online, you can get it at all the standard retailers uh, like Amazon and Target and Walmart. But please, if you do that, um, opt for the slowest form of shipping possible. Um, (laughs) Turns out fast shipping increases emissions by a lot. Um, But if folks are just interested in our work um, or climate change in the state or more broadly, um, you can check out our university website. It's climate.umn.edu. Wonderful. Well, Heidi, it's always a delight to chat with you. I hope we'll be able to connect again in the fall after you find out some of the results of the predictions for climate in the year 2100. 
Yes, I hope so too. And thank you so much. And for all that you do, you engage in climate action and all your listeners do by by just joining in and being part of this. Thank you, Heidi. You have a great day and we'll hopefully talk to you soon. That sounds great. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Everyday is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.